My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects. Now, there are just two episodes left in this season. I know, a season, but it's lasted for over a year. It sounds crazy. I've been working on ideas for the next season. I'm considering diving deeper into church history. I'm also considering a straight history podcast. If you have an opinion or a recommendation, I'd love to hear it. Feel free to email me at joehomc at gmail.com. Now, to the show. In today's episode, we'll be covering one of the most momentous events that has taken place in the lives of most current members of the church. This is one of those, I remember exactly where I was when I heard this happened type of event. So let's kick things off in the early 1970s. As always, context. A lot was going on in America during this decade. As we covered in the last episode, the Vietnam War was now in full swing. New President Richard Nixon was looking to improve the world's view of America, so in February of 1972, he'd begin an unprecedented series of meetings. First, meeting with Mao in China to discuss normalizing relations between the two countries and finishing the trip with a stop in Moscow, Russia, where he met with leader Leonid Brezhnev to discuss an arms pact and how the U.S. might begin the sale of American wheat to the Soviet Union. Yes, we were looking to solve relations with Russia with wheat. Sounds like our episode on the wheat project. These meetings installed a tremendous amount of trust among the American people. So much so that in November of 1972, when the presidential election came around, Nixon would crush his competitor, George McGovern. And I mean crush him. Nixon won 520 electoral college votes, compared to just 17 for McGovern. Nixon also won over 60% of the popular vote. But ultimately, all of this was for naught. Nixon's insecurities during the election caused his team to break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate office building in Washington, D.C. The following trials and convictions of his staff members would begin an impeachment process that would see Nixon retire from office in disgrace in August of 1974. He'd be the first and only U.S. president to resign from office. Nixon's vice president, Gerald Ford, would take over as president. He'd immediately pardon Richard Nixon, and the next year, 1975, he'd finally pull U.S. forces out of Vietnam, ending the U.S.'s involvement in that conflict. Today, if you open up any newspaper, we're talking about ending conflicts in the Middle East. There's talks about impeachments. I can't imagine what it was like to live at this time. Now, let's move the story along to focus on one soldier who did experience all of this. In 1972, right in the middle of all of these events, a young African-American that was living in North Carolina decided to enlist in the Navy. The young soldier's name was Joseph Freeman. Joseph didn't know it yet, but he'd play a major role in church history. So what happened with Joseph Freeman? As a youth, Joseph was religious. 
His mother was a minister in the holiness faith, and Joseph Freeman wanted to become a minister his whole life. So following graduation from high school, he was licensed and ordained as a minister in the holiness congregation, just like his mother. Joseph, though, didn't believe that ministers should be paid for their works. So instead of taking a scholarship to attend a Methodist seminary, he enlisted in the Navy. That same year, 1972, Joseph Freeman was stationed in Hawaii where he had spent the next three years of his life before the Vietnam War came to an end for the Americans. During this time in the military, Joseph, the holiness minister, encountered a new religious group, Mormons. There were a few enlisted in his platoon, and he was somewhat impressed by how they carried themselves. His holiness faith forbade him to use drugs and alcohol, something the Mormons didn't do either under the teachings of a word of wisdom. One day, while exploring the island of Oahu, Joseph Freeman came upon the Polynesian Cultural Center. Quick pause for you listeners that don't know. The Polynesian Cultural Center is a small Polynesian theme park slash museum on the north shore of Oahu. It's owned and operated by the LDS Church. There, while exploring the different simulated tropical Polynesian villages, the young soldier Joseph Freeman came upon a group of missionaries teaching a couple of people about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Joseph Freeman, who wasn't interested in converting to the church, found himself very interested in the gospel the church missionaries taught. He was thrilled with their teachings about Christ's atonement and where we came from before this life and where we were going after. On top of it all, the church had another book of scripture that he found thought-provoking. Now, here's the kicker and where this young soldier will enter the story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The group of people that the missionaries were teaching were hung up on one piece of doctrine. Joseph Freeman thought that was odd considering how much he was falling for the gospel taught by these Mormons. He also thought it was odd because the people the missionaries were teaching were white, whereas Joseph Freeman was black. The principle that the people were taking issue with that day was a major topic within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it's the object of today's episode. Today's object is Declaration 2, the priesthood for every faithful worthy man. So what is Declaration 2 and how did it come about? First, some history about why this object was needed. When Joseph Smith began organizing the church leadership and called on missionaries to begin the process of teaching and baptizing, there was no thought given to skin color. In fact, some black Americans held important positions in early church and did some important work to build it up. Among them was Elijah Abel. As early as 1832, yes, just two years after the church was founded, Elijah Abel was baptized in Cincinnati by an LDS missionary. Elijah Abel would then join the throngs of early converts flocking to Kirtland, Ohio. There Elijah would find himself in good standing with Joseph Smith and the leadership. He'd help in building the Kirtland Temple and be ordained an elder in the young church. We have record that he'd received the temple ordinances that were being practiced in Kirtland at the time, and that Elijah would follow the church to Missouri and suffer with the members at the hands of the mobs. He'd serve multiple missions and eventually be called upon as a member of the third quorum of the 70 apostles. But Elijah Abel wasn't the only one. We have records of numbers of black Americans getting baptized and joining the young church. However, 
After Joseph Smith was killed and the church migrated out to Utah to establish the headquarters in the Rocky Mountains, things began to change. Two years after arriving in the Rocky Mountains, Brigham Young would announce a church-wide ban stating that black members could no longer hold the priesthood. This announcement caught many members by surprise, including Elijah Abel, who even though he was a member of the Quorum of the Seventy, was now not allowed to be sealed with his wife in the temple. Now, here's the real question. Was this priesthood ban a revelation or a policy? To most of us, that probably seems like a trivial question, but to the prophets that followed Brigham Young that had to deal with the fallout of this ban, it was everything. Unfortunately, we don't have a detailed reasoning as to why Brigham Young instituted the ban. We do know that he mentioned many times that the pearl of great price, remember, this is the new scripture in the church, we discussed it in episode 44, that in that book, the book of Abraham, chapter 1, it states that the descendants of Cain, or Africans according to the scripture, weren't to hold the priesthood as part of the curse God set upon them after Cain killed Abel. Brigham Young would state this as the justification for the ban and go on to make a number of off-the-cuff comments on African Americans that, again, weren't revelation-based, but that anti-Mormons have held against the church ever since. Brigham's hand may have been forced as the state of Utah began to grow in the mid-1800s. Converts to the church left their homes and trekked to Utah. Utah was now filling up with whites, freed blacks, and slaveholders and their slaves, all members. We're not positive if this is what forced Brigham Young to make this decision, but it was a topic of much debate in Utah politics at the time. Whatever the ultimate reason, the prophets that followed Brigham Young all seemed to view this ban as temporary. We have journal entries from Wilford Woodruff, Heber J. Grant, David O. McKay, and Harold B. Lee stating that the time was coming when the priesthood would be restored to all worthy males. Temporary is somewhat relative here, as the ban would last over 148 years. Now, how did the reversal come about? As the church settled in Utah, missionaries not only preached across America, but as we discussed in previous episodes, they began hopping on ships and preaching all across the globe. As church membership grew and the rights of African Americans were expanded, this ban wasn't only hard to explain across the states, but extremely difficult to justify globally. How do you proselyte and grow the church in countries in Africa if local leaders can't hold the priesthood? When David O. McKay became prophet of the church in the 1950s, this really started to come to a head. One big example was that in order to justify and uphold this ban, new branching policies began popping up. This was demonstrated in the fact that in order to get the priesthood, you had to prove that you didn't have any black ancestors in your genealogy. In areas like South Africa or South America, this could be extremely difficult or impossible to prove and left a lot of members asking really hard questions. So, amid the debates on this subject, David O. McKay waived this portion of the policy. You no longer had to prove your ancestry in order to hold the priesthood. This really helped the work in South America and South Africa to take off. David O. McKay then took it further. In his readings of Brigham Young's statements, the descendants of Cain referred to just people from the continent of Africa. As such, 
If you had darker skin and came from the Caribbean countries or South America, in his view, you could now hold the priesthood because you weren't a descendant of Cain. This literal shift really began the process of other church leaders to begin to press on this ban as well. Hubie Brown was one of them. Hubie Brown was one of David O. McKay's counselors, and as he studiously reviewed the history of this priesthood ban, in his view, it wasn't a revelation. It was a policy, and as such, it could be removed by a policy vote among the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and First Presidency. So in 1969, that vote actually took place. However, after all his work, the policy reversal lost by just one vote. Harold B. Lee voted to uphold the priesthood ban. His reasoning was that this ban was too entrenched in the church and that only a revelation could see it removed. So the priesthood ban continued. The next year in 1970, David O. McKay passed away and Hubie Brown was released from his calling. The civil rights movement had taken place in the U.S. and the church became a focal point of equal rights. In the 1970s, we saw African-American athletes sit out when playing against church-owned BYU in protest of this priesthood ban. There were marches in Salt Lake City and even a protest at the New York World's Fair outside the church's pavilion. None of this, though, seemed enough to affect the church leadership. The only thing that could change this ban was the newest prophet, Spencer W. Kimball. Shortly after becoming the newest prophet, Spencer W. Kimball asked a number of church leaders namely Bruce R. McConkie, Thomas S. Monson, and Boyd K. Packer, to submit memos on the doctrinal basis of the prohibition and how a change might affect the church. They all did so, with Bruce R. McConkie's probably having the strongest impact. His memo stated quite clearly that there was no scriptural impediments to lifting the priesthood ban. All of this information was helpful, but by the late 1970s, Spencer W. Kimball seemed to have come to the conclusion that a revelation was the final needed piece of the puzzle. So in 1977, Spencer W. Kimball got a spare key to the Salt Lake Temple, and according to the story, he spent many long nights in the temple alone, praying for revelation on how to lift the span. Finally, on June 1st, 1978, Spencer W. Kimball called together the First Presidency and Quorum of Twelve Apostles to the Salt Lake Temple. There, he explained his wrestle that he'd had with the Lord over the priesthood ban. He read to them the words he'd put together as Revelation, which is now officially Declaration 2, the priesthood for all worthy males. After talking through the Revelation, President Kimball led the leadership in a prayer circle where the leaders recorded feeling a powerful spiritual confirmation. Bruce R. McConkie later wrote, quote, there are no words to describe the sensation, but simultaneously the twelve and the three members of the First Presidency had the Holy Ghost descend upon them, and they knew that God had manifested his will. End quote. L. Tom Perry described, quote, I felt something like the rushing of wind. There was a feeling that came over the whole group. When President Kimball got up, he was visibly relieved and overjoyed. End quote. And lastly, Gordon Billy Hinckley said, quote, For me, it felt as if a conduit opened between the heavenly throne and the kneeling, pleading prophet of God, who was joined by his brethren. He went on to say, and this is powerful, none of us in that room were ever the same again after that experience. End quote. 
On June 9th, 1978, the announcement was made public to the world. The New York Times reported that they stopped their presses, updated the next day's front page with a picture of Spencer W. Kimball, and a headline that read, Mormon Church Strikes Down Ban Against Blacks and Priesthood. In September, the official declaration was read to the church as a whole and sustained by common consent as official revelation. Now, what effect did Declaration 2 have upon the church? The protests against the church in the U.S. stopped almost immediately. Members and non-members alike rejoiced. If you're LDS and have a family member old enough to have been alive at this time, ask them where they were when they heard this announcement. Chances are they will remember every detail. But aside from that, mission work really took off. In November 1978, the first missionaries were sent to Nigeria to establish the church in Africa. In 1978, there were fewer than 100,000 members of African-American lineage among the world's 4 million Latter-day Saints. By 1998, so 20 years after the revelation, there were an estimated half a million church members with African-American roots among the members of the church. An estimated 100,000 lived in Africa and the Caribbean and another 300,000 in Brazil. Now, going back to our story at the beginning, let's talk about Joseph Freeman, the black soldier that heard the gospel being preached while stationed in Hawaii in 1972. Although Joseph Freeman was slightly bothered that he couldn't hold the priesthood, he fell in love with the gospel taught by the Mormon missionaries. As he began to attend church, he fell in love with a local member named Toa Isabella, a returned missionary that had been raised in Samoa. After dating for a time, Joseph and Toa were married in 1974 after he was baptized a member of the church. After Joseph Freeman left the army, he and his new family moved to Salt Lake City, Utah to be close to church leadership. Joseph was living in Salt Lake City on June 9, 1978. He'd record that on one hot June day he was working in the yard when he got a phone call. He said the person on the other end frantically asked him if he'd heard the announcement. He hadn't and was told to turn on the TV. Joseph Freeman quickly discovered that the ban stopping him from holding the priesthood had been lifted by President Spencer W. Kimball. Joseph Freeman didn't believe it. He immediately phoned church headquarters where he received confirmation. The ban had been lifted. Elated, Joseph Freeman would contact local leadership. He was in good standing, and just two days later, he would be the first member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of African-American descent to be ordained to the priesthood. Just two weeks after that, Joseph Freeman would take his family to the temple where they'd be sealed for eternity. I love this story. Unlike others that we've told in this podcast, Joseph Freeman is still alive today. Up until a few years ago, he was serving as a bishop of a small ward in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, where can you see Declaration 2? The first original document was copied on June 9th and sent to all major news outlets across the United States. The original has been lost to time, but you can read a copy of it at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants or just Google and view a copy online. Now, in closing, the priesthood ban is one of the tougher topics to cover in LDS church history. I know, it took me some time to put this episode together. It's not so much the ban that makes it difficult— a quick read of the Old and New Testament will tell you that God has been selective throughout history regarding who can act and hold his priesthood. 
This ban is different because the context was often cloudy and many times smacked of racial tones that grate on modern-day ears. However, it should be noted that although this was a policy launched without a lot of historical recordings, the leadership wrestled with their history, debated the facts, and instead of following any modern-day pressures, they sought out the will of the Lord through the prophets in Revelation. That, in my view, is a perfect example of how a prophet should lead a church in the 21st century. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects podcast, episode 49, Declaration 2. As always, if you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it or leave me a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. There's only one episode left in the series, and I can't wait to tie this all up. Thanks again for listening.